All right, everybody should have a notebook on biblical worldview. Biblical worldview 101. But uh, the reason that uh, we are doing this series over the next counting today, uh, nine weeks, we did the first one two weeks ago, and then last Sunday I was gone. But the reason we're doing this is because there was a time in the history of our country where most people operated in their lives from a Christian consensus, a Christian milieu, a Christian view of things. Even if they were not individually Christian, they understood something about Christianity, understood something about the Judeo-Christian ethic. And so you didn't have to explain very uh, elementary things uh, to folks because we were all operating uh, from the same foundation. That consensus has been eroding over the last uh, four decades at, at least. And uh, we have come to a point now in 2012 where it is all but gone. And so now when you speak to people about the Christian faith, you cannot assume that they know some of the foundational issues and go straight to the gospel. But there are things that you have to explain to them about the Bible and where the Bible came from and, uh, and, and even it, discussing whether or not there is a God because we've had decades now of young people being taught that they are not the products of the creative activity of God, but of time plus chance plus, plus nothing. And so you take all that together, it's important for us, for evangelistic purposes, to have a good grasp of the worldview presented in Scripture. But the other reason is it's beneficial to us as believers to know the lens through which God says we are to look at the world. And that is, after all, what a worldview is. It's the way you view, the way you see the world. And God's desire is for us to see the world from his perspective. And he gives us that perspective in Scripture. So having come, all of us, out of a culture which is, has lost its biblical moorings, then we too need to be reminded about what God says about the components of a biblical worldview so that we can make the decisions that we make in our lives from his perspective and thereby please him with what we choose to do. So over the next nine weeks now, we're going to try to fill in the components of a biblical worldview. Two weeks ago, we started. First three pages in your notebook were an introduction to worldview. And we give you a definition of what a worldview is. I've given a very informal one. In the middle of page one, there's a formal definition that a worldview is a way of viewing or interpreting all of reality. It's a framework through which one makes sense of the data of life and of the world. And if you weren't able to be here two weeks ago, uh, we record all of our messages, both for our worship hour and for the Discovering God hour. Those are on our website, so you'll be able to listen to that. And then coupled with having the notebook in front of you, you'll be able to catch up. Today, on page four then in your notes... After the introduction now, this first lesson, and the section at the top says orientation. So this series is going to be divided into three sections, orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. Now what is that? Orientation that we start today is, uh, comes from this fact. The fact that God, when he created the world and created the first man and first woman, gave them instructions about why he has made the world who he is, who they are, and what their responsibility toward him and one another is. To put it another way, he gave them an orientation to his world, to themselves, and to their purpose. 
And so creation involves God giving an, an orientation. And that orientation has some extremely important components to us, to it, that we need to understand because they are still viable, they are still necessary, they're still in existence today. They're still operative today. But we know the Bible's story, that the man and the woman failed to fulfill the purpose that God gave them in his orientation to his world. And as a result, disorientation occurred. And so instead of seeing now the world from God's perspective and pursuing the purpose for which God placed them here, they now became distorted in their thinking and in their understanding. They don't see each other clearly. They don't see God clearly. They don't see his world clearly. And that has a number of profound effects to it. So orientation is creation. Disorientation is the fall or, or sin. But thankfully, God hasn't left it there. Because if he leaves it there, then the world continues to disintegrate and go downhill. But God is doing a third thing, and that is reorienting his world to its original purpose. And that in turn then tells you and me why we are here now, what we're supposed to be about now. We, as we are going to see, are supposed to be active participants with God in the reorientation that he is doing in his world. And we'll see that he does that through his church, through using the gifts that he has given to, to each of us. And so that will give you a full uh, orbed picture of God's world and the lens through which we're to see that world. Orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. So we start with orientation, creation. And look at the fact that creation implies authority and the need for revelation. I'll explain what that is. But first, let's understand that this is my Father's world. That this is the world that, that God created, that He created immediately. That is, not, not that He created it quickly, although he did, he did that as well. But by immediate, I mean not mediated. So immediate, without mediation, without any intervening materials, God created the world out of nothing, immediate. And so in the beginning, God. And in the beginning, all there was was God. But in the beginning, God then created. And so that's what I mean when I say immediate. Without matter, without any other mediation of, uh, of, of help for the materials or others uh, or anything else, God immediately created the world ex Nihilo is the you know, Latin phrase for out of nothing. So in the beginning, God created. God created everything in the beginning, the heavens and the earth. And when Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, heavens and earth are what are called a, a merism, M-E-R-I-S-M. And th that is uh, something that gives you from the beginning to the end, the totality. And so Hebrews or excuse me, Genesis 1-1 is, is telling us that in the beginning God created everything. And prior to in the beginning, there wasn't anything but God. Now sometimes we think, you know, well, there had to be, there was something else going on. I mean, what, what was God doing? God doesn't tell us. But, but God does tell us that in the beginning He created everything, heavens and earth. And that, as I say, is a phrase to encompass everything. And further, that is proved in your New Testament, Genesis, Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John 1-1 uses the same phrase, in the beginning. 
And so the truth of that, prior to God's creative activity in the beginning, that there was nothing but God, the truth of that fact is seen in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now take a look there if you have your Bible. John 1, 1 through 3. And John begins his presentation of Jesus as the Son of God. And how do I know that he's making a presentation that Jesus is the Son of God? Because he says so in the second to the last chapter of his gospel, John chapter 20 and verse 31, I have written these things to you so that you may know that Jesus is the Son of God and that, and that you might believe in his name and that by believing you might have life. And so John's purpose is to show that Jesus is God the Son. And he starts out fulfilling that purpose in verse 1 by saying, in the beginning. So John purposely uses the same language that Moses used in Genesis 1, in the beginning. And in the beginning was the Word. And he's going to explain who the Word is in, in just a bit. But in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was two things. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. So whoever the Word is, and he will identify him specifically in just a bit, but whoever the Word is, there are these two qualities about him. He is both with God, and he is God. And that is John's way of explaining that there is one God, but this one God exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And this one who he's going to identify as the Word then is both fully God, but he is also with God as well, as one of the distinct persons of the triune, triune God. So in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then to prove that in the beginning, that's all there was was God. He says in verse 2, he was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And so contrary to anyone who would claim that Jesus is a created being himself, a la Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus is a created being. John says, no chance. In the beginning, there was, there was only God, and there was nothing that was created except by God, and specifically focusing on the creative activity of this one identified as the Word. Apart from Him, nothing was made that has been made. So in the beginning, God created. In the beginning was the Word, and He not only is not created, there was nothing that has been created other than what He made. And so John is telling us what Genesis 1-1 says, prior to in the beginning, what nothing but God, and God created everything, the heavens and the earth, and the one who specifically John is focusing on as in his creative activity is this one called the Word. Now, who is he? Verse 14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, some of you may have versions that say in verse 14 that 
We have beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of, of God. And if you're not careful, you can get the idea that, that God had a baby 2,000 years ago, and that's when Christ came into existence. John has made very clear he existed from all eternity. He was God. But he became flesh. And the reason the NIV says instead of begotten, it says, it says God the one and only, here's why. It's one word that's translated one and only. And it's a Greek word. Here it is. Mono genes. And that's a compound of two words. Mono means one. So if you have a monocle, it's got one, one spectacle, one lens. Mono means one, and genes means kind. So if you remember biology, and biology you know, categorizes all these species into these different categories... Uh, and, you know, you've got phyla, and this is what brings back a lot of bad memories. <laughs> but one of them is, one of those categories is called a, a genus. And the idea is, here's a particular category or kinds of things. And so, genes means kind, mono means one. The word is one of a kind, absolutely unique. And that is why the NIV says, God the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, who is this one specifically? Verse 17. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So in the beginning, God created and prior to, in the beginning, God creating the heavens and the earth, this merism that means everything wasn't nothing. And everything that has been created has been created through the agency of Jesus Christ, who is God the Son. So now back on page four then. This is my Father's world. And in order to have a biblical view of the world, we have to understand and believe the historicity of the book of Genesis. Now, it's a historicity. It just means it's, it's historical. It is, it is recording stuff that actually happened, as opposed to being mythological. And there are people who, who believe that. And there are people who teach that. But the Bible presents this as, as what God did, God's created, creative activity, and God's explanation for how the world came to be, its purpose, his orientation to his world, and it is foundational, foundational to everything else now that proceeds historically and, and biblically. And if you don't have this foundation, then there are plenty of things that, that do not make sense. And so Genesis is historical. God is giving us a historical account of what he did. And what did he do? He created the universe in six 24-hour days. So there are people who say we got to harmonize what the Bible says somehow with what the, the scientific, the, some of the scientific community says, the scientific consensus says. And they say that the world is, is, is billions of, the universe is billions of years old. And so how are we going to harmonize and, and, and came into existence over billions of years uh, or was evolved over billions of years? So how are we going to harmonize what Scripture says with that? We can't have this six 24-hour day thing. 
Well, I would simply say to you, you can't believe what the Bible says without the 624-hour day thing. And so we're going to have to harmonize this with so-called science another way other than changing what God says about it. Now, how do we know that God makes the claim that he made the world in six, that these were actually 24-hour days? Because in Genesis chapter 1, God then gives us an account of his creation of the world day by day. And you remember that it says he created and then the evening and the morning were the first day. And then he created some other things and the evening and the morning were the second day and on it goes. So God is giving you some time parameters by saying the evening and the morning. So to say that these days are indeterminate ages, and that's what some have tried to claim, that each of these days is not 24-hour days, but rather these are nondescript lengths of, of time. You have to explain the evening and the morning thing. Further, the Hebrew word day, yom, like Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the Hebrew word Yom, every time it is used in the Old Testament, with a number, every time it's used with a number, like first or second, it is always a regular day, always. And so the evening and the morning were the first Yom, the first day. And that's consistent throughout the Old Testament. But then in addition to that, we have what's listed for you on page 4. Exodus chapter 20. And in the giving of the Ten Commandments, God gives the fourth commandment to remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. Here's why. Four, because... In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, how do you fit the ages thing into that? So God is saying keep a day. Day of rest. I could actually buy into this ages thing for the day of rest. You know, this is just an indiscriminate amount of time indeterminate amount of time. So Kim says, you know, why don't you get off your backside and do some work? And I'm saying, hey, it's the Sabbath. <laughs> and she says, it was the Sabbath last week. I say, hey, who can say how long that is? <laughs> the Sabbath day was a day, right? One of seven. And God is comparing that to the six days in which he did his creative work. And so you're going to have to find another way to harmonize what Scripture says with science other than making it an indeterminate amounts of time for the, for the days. So the historicity of Genesis means that, one, God says he created the world and all that is in it in six days. And how do we go about harmonizing this? And that's what the middle of page four is about. One way... Uh, that would be helpful for us it would be to understand that there are two different kinds of, of science. Most of the time when we think of science, we think of a particular type of science, that which uh, is amenable to the scientific method. You remember the scientific method when you were in school, that the scientific method uh, requires that something be testable, 
that something be repeatable so that you're actually able to test a phenomenon uh, and observe that and then be able to repeat those tests before you can make, draw conclusions about what science is uh, teaching about that particular thing. So that's the scientific method. But, but origins don't lend themselves by, themselves by definition to the scientific method, do they? It requires that something be observable. Well, if there wasn't nothing, if the, only, if the only one there was God, then who can observe? And besides that, who can repeat it? So when you're talking about origins, you're talking about a different kind of science. So some authors have divided two kinds of science this way, and it's been helpful to me, perhaps to you. There's operation science and there is forensic science. Operation science is the kind of thing that we normally think of as science, something that you can look at in a lab, something that you can create the environment for in order to observe and test and repeat. You can see then how it operates under certain conditions. And so you could take a, uh, a fruit fly and you could take that fruit fly and you could put it in a laboratory and you could expose that poor helpless fruit fly to all sorts of different conditions. You can zap that poor thing with radiation, tons of radiation. And here's what you come out with. A really weird looking fruit fly. It's going to have deformities. It might grow three fruit fly heads, wings, whatever. But if you are somebody who believes that, that a changing environment, adaptation to an environment is what produced the world that we see, then the fruit fly experiment isn't going to help you very much. Because in addition to being deformed fruit fly, it's got to grow something other than fruit fly stuff. That head or that wing or whatever it is has got to be something different than fruit fly. But the truth is, no matter how many times you stick that poor fruit fly in that environment and you bombard it with radiation, it's always going to be more fruit fly stuff. Ugly fruit fly, but nonetheless still fruit fly. But that's how operation science works. You look at what happens in a changing environment and you observe it. And you draw conclusions from it. But origin science doesn't lend itself to that, so it's a different category. Forensic science. Now, what are forensics? Forensics are taking a look at what you have in the present in order to extrapolate to what happened in the past. Taking a look at what I have now in order to determine what happened back then. So a medical examiner does forensic medicine, forensic science. And sorry to be gross, but what he's dealing with are dead bodies. And what he's got in the present is a dead body. And he's trying to determine from an autopsy, from an examination of entry wounds for a bullet or that kind of thing, what happened a week ago or whenever. So that's forensics. It's taking what you have in the present and extrapolating to the past based upon what you're able to, to see. That's what origin science is. We look at what we have in the present and now we have to use that 
to try to make determinations about what happened in the past when, in the case of Origins, there was nobody else there to see it. So it's forensic science. Another helpful distinction, at least for me, is to distinguish between what some have called macro and micro evolution. Macro evolution is what we think of when we normally just use the word, the, the phrase theory of evolution. Uh, evolution. Macro evolution is amoeba to man. That is, from the smallest, from gases that compressed billions of years ago and exploded in the Big Bang to over time, plus chance, plus nothing, producing what you see. That's macro, large evolution. It's produced everything that you see. Microevolution is simply observing the fact that under different environmental conditions, things change, or you could use the word things evolve. And that's a fact, that under certain conditions, Things, things change under different conditions, then things change. But that's microevolution. That's, that's in a small way, in, and it's a leap, a huge leap, to then go from there to say, this accounts for how the world came into existence. And so we can say we believe in evolution, but we believe in microevolution, not macroevolution. We don't argue that under certain conditions, different environmental conditions, things change. And then a last important component for, for what the Bible teaches about origins is this long-term uniformitarianism. And that is this. The key word in that long term is the beginning of it, uniform. And the idea is, the assumption in uh, evolutionary theory is, that things have remained uniform from the past into the present. That there's been a consistency, a constancy from the past to, to the present. And so how does that show up? Well, it shows up, for instance, in dating methods. You know, the most popular method for dating fossils is radioactive carbon-14. But radioactive carbon-14 dating is based upon a a determination, uh, a calculation that's based upon the rate of decay of carbon-14. So the rate of decay of carbon-14 in the present is X. And then you take a fossil and you, you see uh, how much radioactive carbon-14 you have, and then if indeed the rate has remained uniform, has been the same, going back, then you can calculate how old this fossil is. But what if the rate of decay has not been the same? What if, what if hundreds of years ago, or thousands of years ago, the rate of decay was different? And what, would, and what might change the rate of decay? Well, what if there has been huge changes in the environment of the world, caused by something catastrophic like a flood? I'm just throwing that out there. And Peter actually speaks to this, the, the folly of uniformitarianism in 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter 3, beginning in verse 3. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come 
scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Now let me just stop. Here's what Peter's obviously dealing with. He's looking into the future about the second coming of Christ, and he's saying there are going to be scoffers who will say, where is this second coming that's supposed to occur? And here's their reason for scoffing now in verse 4. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. You see the uniformitarian assumption. Everything goes on the same. Where is God intervening in his world? So where's the evidence that God has intervened and therefore we should believe that he's going to return? That's the, that's the reasoning of these scoffers. But Peter responds, verse 5, But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word the, heavenly, or the, he, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of God, ungodly men. So, Peter says, they forget that in the past it has not always gone on as it was since the beginning, but that God has intervened, and he intervened in a big way, namely a flood. And the same God who intervened in a flood is going to intervene in human history again in a big way, this time not by water but by fire. Now why has God delayed the time that he does that? And Peter goes on to give an explanation of that, verse 8. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some, some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So yes, God has not done yet what he has promised he will do in the future. But you have evidence of the fact that God will, because he has intervened in human history in the past, he will do so again. Why hasn't he done it yet? Because he is patient, not wanting any to perish. And he is mercifully giving you time to repent before that occurs. And so Peter says the uniformitarian assumption doesn't work. God has intervened and God will intervene. Now, when I was in college, I had the misfortune of uh, having to take math. <laughs> and uh, you have to do that if you get a, a computer science degree, I found out to my chagrin. So, uh, I had to take more math classes than I care to recount. But, you know, you remember taking math even from, from high school. And they would have these story problems. And the story problems were always weird. I mean, the people who wrote them were sadists. <laughs> I mean, they just... A colony of bacteria grows at... So why a colony of bacteria? I mean, you just... If you're the guy writing this, where, what is wrong with you? But anyway. And so it gives you these assumptions, and you're supposed to take a rate, and, and you're supposed to make calculations going out into the future about the population of this colony of bacteria or just take the population of people on earth. So if you take the rate of population growth right now in 2012 
and you say there are over 6 billion people in the world, and then you go out, say, 50 years, if that rate remains constant, if it remains the same going forward, then we're going to have more people than we're able to have food, and there's all kinds of doomsday scenarios that are created out of that. And there are lots of people who do that. You can Google uh, Thomas Malthus and Malthusian theory about population growth. He did this very thing. People were scared to death because of it. So, you know, I'm in math class, and the math teachers land this out, and at this rate, this is how things will grow, and this is how population will be. And then he says, but the good news is population growth does not remain constant. If it remained constant, then 50, 100 years from now, this is where we'd be. But it doesn't remain constant because there's always something that intervenes to mess up the rate. There's a famine or there's a, a world war. <laughs> and I still remember thinking, this is supposed to make me feel better. Don't worry, we'll all have enough to eat because there'll be a famine. <laughs> Or there'll be a world war and a bunch of people will be killed off. But of course he's right that the rate of population growth does not remain constant going forward, does it? And we don't know exactly what it's going to be 30 years from now, 50 years from now. But here's the thing. Why doesn't that same assumption that things are not uniform going forward hold when you're going backwards? And that's the, that, that is one of the flaws of evolutionary theory, is the assumption that things remain uniform going back, going into the past. They don't remain uniform going forward, and they don't remain, they haven't been uniform into the past, so says the Bible, and frankly, so says common sense as well. So the historicity of Genesis. And because God created the world, here are some implications of that. The world then is theocentric rather than anthropocentric. Those are just cool words for you to use on somebody sometime. Theos means God. Anthropos means man. And so theocentric means the world is centered on God. And anthropocentric means, it's, means man-centered. And because God created the world by his direct creative activity, he is the creator, capital C, then the world is his world and it is centered on him rather than on us. Because he made it, he owns it. Because he made it, he gives the rules, he designed it. He's the one who gave the orientation to the man and the woman, not the other way around. Because God is the creator, it is centered on him. He made it for his purposes. And he has authority over all that he made, including the creatures, you and me. Now, if we're to know what God desires out of his world, then page 5. If God made the world, and he did in a biblical worldview, God is the creator and we are the created, then in order for us to know why we're here, what we're about, what God's purpose is for us, then he's going to have to tell us. That's what Roman numeral 2, top of page 5, is saying. The necessity of revelation. When we say revelation, we're not referring to the 66th book of the Bible. Revelation, we're just talking about the concept of revelation. That in order for us to know, God has to tell us. God has to reveal. 
God has to make known. The word revelation means to make known. So it is necessary for God to make known to us specifics about who he is, specifics about who we are, specifics about now what our problem is as a result of sin entering his world and why he has placed us here and what's going to happen in the future. All of this is necessary if we are to know these things. God's going to have to tell us. So I say, first of all, the Creator must reveal, make known His will if it's to be known. And the good news is God has done that from the very outset. God created man in His own image, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them and He said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give you every green plant for food. And it was so. And then God goes on to say, but there is this one tree that you must not eat of. So this is God revealing. This is God making known. And he is giving information to the man and, and to the woman about why he has placed them here and what their duty before him is. And if we're to know that, if indeed creation is true, and it is, then it's necessary for God to make that known to us. The good news is he's done that. God has revealed. God has made known. Now, I want you to notice... In, uh, in that passage, in the second line, it says, God blessed them and said to them. So in Genesis chapter 1, you have a cadence, you know, just a rhythm to Genesis 1. And God made some things, and God said, let there be, and it was, and the evening and the morning. And God said, let there be, and it was, and the evening and the morning. And you just have this rhythm going through. And all the while, you've got God talking, but God is just speaking things into existence. But now here, for the first time, you have God making something, and He doesn't just bring it into existence, He talks to the thing He made. And He says to them. Now, what does that tell you? That tells you that the thems that God is speaking to are different than the other stuff that he has made. They and they alone, does God say to them, these are your instructions. This is what you are to, to do. And what that tells us is what I have in point B. Man is created to receive God's revelation. God created, and God created man unique among creation. And part of that uniqueness is that man is able to receive God's direct communication to him. Man was made to be a communicating being. And man was made to know the voice of his creator. So think about being Adam. And God creates you. I just try to imagine it. God, God makes Adam. And Adam kind of, I, I just want to say, wakes up. But there he is. 
and he's in, um, in existence now. And he doesn't remember not being in existence. He's just there. And God has made him, and God has made him in his image. And God talks to him. And Adam understands who it is. And Adam doesn't say, do you have any papers to identify your, yourself as the creator of the universe? Do you have any documentation that can prove that you really are who you claim to be? He doesn't do any of that. When the creator talks, he listens and he responds. Why? Because he was made to know the voice of his creator. Man was made to receive God's revelation. And man was made with the ability to interpret God's revelation as well. So I want you to go into the earth and I want you to subdue it. I want you to see how it operates. I want you to rule creation as my vice regent on my behalf. You, man, have been created to do that. You have this exalted position now to be my ruler on earth. You have the ability to receive my instructions and I'm giving you the wisdom to interpret what I have made in order to subdue it and use it on my behalf for my purposes. This is the lofty position into which humanity comes. And because the world is God-centered, man is made to... There's a fourth thing that's true about humanity, and that is he's not only dependent on God's revelation, he's able to receive it, he's able to interpret it, but man is made to be a worshiper. So God makes, God owns, God has authority, God tells. And man is made to acknowledge the God-centeredness of this world. It belongs to him and I exist because of him, and I exist to carry out his wishes in his world. So man was made to be a worshiper, and that is natural to humanity, that they are to worship. Now here's what that means then. It means that everybody will worship someone or something. It is the nature of humanity to worship. Everybody will worship someone or something. Even people who, say, who are atheists, who don't believe in God, that doesn't mean they're non-worshippers. That doesn't mean they're, they're non-religious. They're non-religious in the traditional sense, but make no mistake, they have a creed by which they live. <laughs> they, have a set, they have a set of beliefs that they adhere to. And they will worship someone or something because man was made to be a worshiper. And you see this in Romans chapter 1. Although they knew God, they glorified him, neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. So Paul is basing what he says in Romans 1 on the truth taught in creation in Genesis 1. That man was made by the direct 
creative activity of God made in His image and made to worship God and serve God. And man will worship and serve someone or something. The only question is who or what. Now, one last application and I'm done. But here's what that means then. One of the things that means for us. When we go to carry out our work as part of God's reorientation of His world, whoever we encounter in God's world, we know some things about them. We know that they were made this way. We know that they were made to hear God's voice. So don't be offended when they reject you when you give them God's word. Because it's not really you they're rejecting. It's the voice of their creator. And the reason they reject it is because sin has that effect now. The voice I was made to know and understood from moment one of creation, I now no longer want to hear. But his voice still has the ring of authority over my life. And when somebody comes and says, this is what God says from God's word, they still recognize the faint voice of God that they, Romans 1 says they want to suppress. So when you give the word of God to somebody, understand that natural man suppresses that, does not want to hear that. You can go into work tomorrow and they will talk about how they got blasted at the bar, who they slept with. They'll talk about anything and everything, but don't talk about religion. Why? Because they suppress the voice of their creator. The other thing you can be, be sure of is that this individual with whom you're talking was made to be a worshiper. And he or she worships someone or something in their life right now. And that someone or something cannot satisfy. Ultimately, it cannot satisfy. And we are starting to see the effects of that in our world today. Our world, our culture is crumbling. And the reason it's crumbling is because we have rejected the biblical worldview. People continue to worship, but they worship now false gods, substitute gods, gods that they have exchanged. They don't work and they can't satisfy. And as a result, people have all kinds of phobias, people have all kinds of problems. We have massive personal problems that people have today. In a more advanced society, we have more problems. Go figure. Last illustration, and I will shut up. Some of you know the name Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was a, a dissident in the Soviet Union, Christian, committed Christian. He was imprisoned. He was a skilled writer. Uh, he wrote about conditions under Stalin that many did not know existed. He, he exposed what was happening in the gulags. And uh, Sojanitsyn says, when he was a boy uh, and the Bolshevik Revolution 1917 happened and his, his father and his uncles and his grandfathers and all of them were talking about how could this happen? How did this calamity come upon us in our country? That communism has, has taken over. And their explanation was, we've forgotten God. And Solzhenitsyn says, when I was a kid, I, I would hear them say that, and I would think, it's just these old guys being simpletons. And then I studied 
Soviet society, and I experienced it. And I was in prison, and I saw all that was happening. And toward the end of his life, Solzhenitsyn said, I can't improve on the explanation they gave. The reason is we've forgotten God. And do you know why our country is where it is? Because we've forgotten God. And the hope is that a biblical worldview can be recovered. We're going to see in a few weeks how we participate in that reorientation. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for the blessing of this day and the opportunity to gather, to worship you, to learn of you, to encourage and to be encouraged uh, with and by one another. Lord, we ask you to go with us this week as we seek to see your world uh, as it is, to see it clearly with the, through the lenses of, of Scripture. Help us to be people who do not passively absorb our worldview from the environment, the, the culture around us. But help us to be people who have a renewed, because we have a renewed spirit, a spirit that has been made alive and wants to hear your voice, then help us, Lord, to, to, to cherish that voice. Help us to seek your voice in your word and thereby to see your world as it really is. Help us to see people as they really are. Help us to see the problems for what they really are and the solution, the ultimate solution for what it is in Jesus Christ. Help us to observe that this week. May you open doors for us to be your ambassadors uh, to those you bring into our circle of influence. We ask you to grant us safety and to bring us back together next Lord's Day. In the name of Jesus, amen.